Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 214 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Leah Myers. Leah Myers is a member of the Jamestown Scallum tribe of the Pacific Northwest. She earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of New Orleans, where she won the Samuel Mock B Award for nonfiction two years in a row. She now lives in Alabama with roots in Georgia, Arizona, and Washington. Her work has previously appeared in the Atlantic, Craft Literary Magazine, Fuse Journal, and every elsewhere, excuse me, everywhere would be nice, but elsewhere. <laughs> Her debut memoir, Thinning Blood, is published by W.W. W. Norton and received a rave review in the New York Times. Leah, good afternoon. How's it going? Hi, it's going well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Great to talk to you. I'd love to know about growing up. It's pretty cool. You talk about having roots in these different states and these different places. Obviously, Washington State is a huge part of the book of your memoir, but I'd love to know about about growing up and specifically your relationship with the written word. Were you, you know, a big reader always at the library? Um, what kind of stuff were you reading? What was that all? Um, how was that as a kid in, in your relationship with the written word? Oh, yeah, I've always been a big reader. Um, I was taught, my dad taught me to read um, before I was in school, hmm. um, at least a little. And so I've always been around books. And I found that was my first like escape into things is realizing that I've that books were a way to travel anywhere, hmm. um, stories and, and the written word. And so I, uh, I've always been surrounded by books. I, I have a hard time parting with any, <laughs> right. um, and, uh, so it's been, yeah, ever since I was young, always been very interested in reading pretty much anything. Um, mm -hmm. I liked mysteries. I liked, um, documentary or like uh nonfiction things uh fantasy mm -hmm. i know i know i like read a lot of literary pop culture novels like stephen mm -hmm. king uh mm -hmm. but all the way from that down to like literary magazines and things like that oh very cool yeah you're talking about having trouble parting with books and you said books were your first like you say love sounds like a love affair right i mean we're it really is yeah. like a love for reading that we all have it's pretty cool Absolutely. The way you describe that, that's awesome. Being surrounded by love. I mean, books. I love it's it. Same thing. <laughs> same, same thing. Same thing. Exactly. In the book, in Thinning Blood, you talk about, you know, reading um, like Sherman Alexi, gosh darn him and his terrible, you know, behavior outside of his, we'll just talk about his books. Joy Harjo, um, the great writer and I believe poet laureate, right? Yes. Uh, she's poet laureate. Yeah. And Natalie Diaz, you know, my... When uh, was it when my brother was an Aztec? I think I'm mixing up the title a little bit. No, yeah, when my brother was an Aztec when was her Aztec. first release, and then she's also got more recently post-colonial love poem. Right, and I want to say maybe National Book Award, one of the huge awards, Pulitzer Prize. I think so. Yeah. Right. I just wonder about like about representation, being part of Sklalem tribe, being native. What you read when you were growing up, or what you didn't read, and 
whether you were kind of consciously looking for others, um, other native writers, or if it was something that was more subconscious or something you realized later on. Sorry, that's a million questions at once, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I think that started, you know, I didn't start out looking for native writers. It didn't even occur to me that that was something I could look for for a long mm -hmm. time, um, just because it was not a very, you know, there wasn't much representation at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I read, I talk about it in the book, but when I read Sherman Alexie's uh, The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven, um, which is an amazing collection oh, of stories. So good. So good. And I, I read that and I was, I, it was amazing how, even if it wasn't representation one to one of like my experience mm -hmm. and um, everything, it was still it was it was wonderful to see like my culture in a way sort of yeah. reflected, um, and, and that that really sparked that opened up the door to realize like oh I could try and seek this out, sure. um, which led to um, like you said Joy Harjo, Natalie Diaz, mm -hmm. um, many many others. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wonder getting into college and and beyond, even up to today, who who are you reading? Who challenges you as a writer? Who um, you're just staying, you're just really interested in reading, whether or not it's um, you know reading for pleasure, reading for like looking for craft. But who are some of the writers who really thrill you, challenge you these days and more recently? Um, my a, a sort of touchstone for me is always Natalie Diaz. Um, I can always go back to her work and and um, her interviews and everything, and really find new inspiration and new 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 challenges to sort of face on my own. Um, which is funny because you know she's a poet, um, but I still find a lot of connection there. Mm -hmm. um, Tommy Orange, uh, I've read uh, some of his work in anthologies um, and individually always wonderful mm. um and lately it's been i have been looking more into less like instead of specific authors um anthologies of um upcoming writers or um you know uh, groups of writers i just finished both never whistle at night which is edited by right. sean hawk which is yeah. amazing and um out there screaming which is edited by jordan peele um oh, okay. Yeah. So Never Whistle at Night is um, indigenous dark fiction and horror and um, Out There Screaming is uh, black dark fiction and horror, black authors. And so it's really good. That's awesome. Does Does Jordan Peele have his own work in there? Um, I think he did the foreword, but he doesn't okay. have his own work. He just he yeah. curated the work from others. Yeah. Awesome. And Morgan Talty, did Morgan Talty get in? He's in uh, Never Whistle at Night, I think. I think you so. Know? month or so ago that I finished that yeah. one but it was very good oh that's awesome as far as like the writing bug then so what made you I mean it sounds like you've been writing for for as long as you can remember but what were kind of maybe some of the pivotal points maybe any um eureka moments where it's like oh I can do this and I can do this well um I think it you I have been writing forever you know it's fun to find old stories mm -hmm. from before you know when I could just start to to write I was writing mm -hmm. stories um it's just in in my blood <laughs> um but i uh some of the pivotal moments were um like projects where i had to present uh the things that i'd written yeah. i remember going up in front of people and there was this uh, i'm i'm not very good at speaking or i was not especially as a child very good at public speaking mm -hmm. and i i remember a couple of times in class going up to read something and being terrified and then seeing 
that I had an impact, like the word work that I wrote mm. made an impact on the people around me. And that was, it was, you know, it wasn't like a crazy impact, but it was enough that people that I noticed. Sure. And so that's probably the earliest ones were those sort of like projects, you know, the poetry or short story things in um, a middle school and high school. Yeah. And then uh, as I went on realizing just, I was always happiest when I was writing mm -hmm. that always felt the most correct. Yes. No doubt about it. I appreciate that. Yeah, the 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 idea of you seeing the impact that you make on others makes an impact on you. I love that that cycle um, yeah. when you're sharing your own work. Yeah, it's pretty nerve wracking though, right? It is. It's <laughs> it can be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You took me back to some bad experiences from college workshops. No, I'm just <laughs> no. And some good ones. And some good ones. Yeah. But I do want to pick up on what you said earlier, just talking about uh, Tommy Orange, like. I, sorry to keep coming back to the love thing, but it's like I, that first love was, was there, there. I haven't read, I feel like I don't want to like mess it up by reading anything else of his, his, you know, I'm sure it's great. His, you know, there, there is just, is so, so, so good. Anything yeah. else you'd recommend by him? Um, I don't think he has anything, any collected, any collections since then. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's um, more just like single stories, but anything else that you recommend by him? Um, I believe he had something in never, never whistle at night. Uh, okay. I think he did have something um, there. And most of what I know is like individual short stories. Um, okay. But uh, I think he had a novel coming out soon. Yeah. Um, right. But uh, as far as uh, previous collections, I think, I think mostly I've seen him in anthologies or, or as one-offs mm -hmm. in like literary magazines, but, um, but I do remember seeing like his short story. It was in Never Whistle at Night. I don't remember what the title of his was, but okay. it was amazing. Awesome. I think me and you will be first in line for the new for the novel, right? Absolutely. Oh, man. You you wrote in the book about a really pivotal meeting with your uh professor in MFA program. I I, I want to say at Arizona State. Um MFA was in New Orleans. Oh, University pardon of me, New pardon Orleans. Me. Part of the biography, sorry. And <laughs> and the idea of it being so pivotal about um the professors telling you kind of like, Hey, I you're you're maybe not putting out your best effort and that way you can kind of protect yourself. You're trying that way you won't sabotage yourself, that type of thing. I just wonder about that um, that switch being turned kind of thing, the switch being turned on um, where you're really able to become the the full-fledged writer that you are now. Yeah, that was definitely a really big um, turning around moment, I think, because there was this sense of protection in a lot of parts of my life where it was, mm -hmm. I, I purposefully set myself up to fail sure. uh, because if I, if it was, if there was a reason besides the fact, if I, you know, as she put it, if I, I was terrified to write and give it my all and it still not be good enough, mm -hmm. because then that meant that I was bad, you know, right. whether or not that was true, that was how my brain was interpreting it. Sure. And I really needed somebody to, to lay it out for me and say like, Hey, you're doing this and you need to stop it. Mm -hmm. Um, and she did. She was. She did not mince her words. Um, <laughs> she was very direct in in how that went. And uh, and it was it was hard to hear. You know, it's never easy to hear that somebody can see that you've what you're doing, and even if you can't see it. Yeah. Um, but it was very important and set me up to to succeed in the end. Yeah, I found that part to be to to resonate very much. I mean, with my own with my own life with my own writing, I guess you could say with, you know, I'm a, I'm a high school teacher. So with students and with, you know, the players I coach, I feel like that's, 
that idea of like, if I don't put my full effort out there, then I can't be, I can't be critiqued fully. Right. Like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't try my best. That kind of thing. Exactly. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Thinning blood is the memoir. I wonder about some of the seeds for the, for the memoir, for the book, some ideas of kind of some of the inspiration. I mean, is this, is, you know, is this something that's been, you've been working on for years? Is it, was it a COVID, um, you know, project? I wonder about some of the seeds for it. Sure. Um, it started, um, the very beginning of it started in nonfiction workshops at mm. my MFA um, and sort of realizing that there was a lot I could help people understand that I thought was commonplace. Mm. Um, it was between that and uh, the other sort of root or anchor for it all was the desire to have a tangible memory um, of my family, you know, have a written record of my family and my tribe mm. because it is at this point, you know, in danger. Like there mm. is this, there is a chance it won't be around for much longer. So having something makes it harder for people to forget yeah. uh, was also a, a big driving force behind the creation of it. I appreciate that. I wonder about some of the terminology is, you know, tribe has kind of gone in and out of I get political correctness. I don't know what the term would be. I wonder about your rationale in using tribe and Native American and kind of what you've learned, like in your own life and also like in the academia of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, in academia, the, the terms will change. I wonder about kind of how you see and maybe how you, maybe an evolution of the term tribe or Native American that you've seen even in your life. Um, I think the term tribe, I think it has gone, it has become sort of a little less commonplace in everyday speech. You know, I know I used yeah. to hear it a lot as far as like people say, like I found my tribe, mm -hmm. meaning more like found family or, or sure. group. Um, but as far as like, yeah, you know, the, the connection to tribe as in like my actual tribe, like, you mm -hmm. know, my, my native, you know, the, my heritage, I think that that has always been the same, or at okay. least as far as I've been aware. Um, okay. There have been other terms. There's, there's different levels of things, but tribe, mm -hmm has always, you know, as far as I know, has always been there. Mm -hmm. um, Native American is, uh, I think, one of the more common terms. It's probably less used now than, I think, Indigenous. I think Indigenous sure. is the one that sort of evolved, even in the past couple of years, has become even the more prominent mm -hmm. um, term. Uh, Native American, I think, is one that I think people... Uh, regardless of cultural background or understanding ha would have reference for, whereas mm -hmm. indigenous is more, I think within communities and, okay. and slowly spreading. So that's, that was why I, I tended towards one that would be a little bit more universal, or at least I, I think it would be. Mm, I appreciate that. The intro for the book starts with not knowing how, quote unquote, to be a Native American and the fact that, as you just said a little bit, you know, you're the last in some way, you're the last in your family line with the Jamestown Squalum blood. You talk about differing levels of cultural pride, things like spirit animals, which has been co-opted and by non-Native American communities, um, appropriate, I guess is a better term, right? And you write yeah. about, you know, like the totem pole, which again is a term a lot of people use without knowing its background. Yeah. Um, and the idea of propping up your own base, your own totem pole with your memories and stories. So I just wonder about like the, I guess the symbol of the totem pole, which goes from beginning to end of the book and 
why you decided to really um, focus on that. The totem poles and are are such a prevalent symbol throughout like the Pacific Northwest and especially mm -hmm. the town where my tribe is. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is a marker that I think represents the fact that um, my tribe is still there, that Native Americans, Indigenous people were still here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's part of why, you know, it's this idea of something standing the test of time mm -hmm. and serving as representation and reminder um, of the community that it comes from. And so that was part of it was this idea of, I, you know, trying to, because that's, again, this book is meant to stand the test of time mm -hmm. somewhat, you know, this idea of being something that holds memory and record uh, for as long as it is around. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to, between that and I do think that the symbolism and myth and, and totems of the, of the women in my family were a big part of helping structure the book and helping understand sort of the evolution of like relationship with culture through the mm -hmm. different generations. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, using them as the, as the, the carvings on the totem pole for, you know, as the structure was also uh really key i think right yeah so cool the way that you use your the different women in your family um building you know from high to low low to high on the totem pole and you know just even i mean like you said earlier just writing a book for your family and to keep these stories alive if this would be a cool book just to like share with your family you know if, if it were just that but it's also so universal so incredibly specific to your family to your tribe but it's also very universal so i was really impressed with that the the title my understanding is basically that it comes from the fact that if you were to have a kid and that comes up a lot later you being one eighth um your kid would be one sixteenth right most likely yes um you know this idea of the thinning blood so i wonder about like the title and ideas of of, of blood quantum which backfire is not the right term but it was you know originally used by the U.S. government to to be abusive towards the Native Americans, right? And yes. now it's often used by many Native American groups. So I just wonder about like the title, Thinning Blood, you know, why you decided to use that and the idea of the blood quantum as well. Um, I think Thinning Blood was the was a title that I chose specifically because it does capture this sense of of waning or or, or of mm -hmm. loss um, mm -hmm. through just time. You know, it's something that that over time is, has gone gone on, and um, especially and it, and it's tragedy, especially when you know I uh, don't agree with blood quantum at all. I think mm. you know because again, it was a federal government, and then was implemented by tribes, and it's it's put an expiration date on the tribes that use it mm. because there's only so long that that people will be able to stay within that. Mm -hmm. Um. And so it's, you know, this idea of a um, fully preventable tragedy, a fully preventable extinction, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, um, that uh, people just don't want to address because they've had it the same way for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of the idea, you know, the idea of thinning blood is is watching this this sort of cultural separation or, or or cultural like seeping away mm -hmm. um because people feel like they don't have you know some people in the the generation below mine that are 116th feel like they don't have 
the uh, the right to be as connected because they mm-hmm. aren't allowed to be tribal citizens. Sure. Um, and some are adamantly fighting that. You know, some are incredibly connected, so it's not everybody, but I do see, you know, it's hard to fight for something when you're not given all the right, all the privileges and access. Sure. Yeah, I don't know if it's at the end of the intro or the beginning of the first part, but it's, um, I'm quoting directly from the book here, just this idea of like, of the women in your family as being the the touchstones. Quote, they had forgotten, we had forgotten. Now I must imagine and put it back together as best I can. I am Lillian's great-granddaughter, and I have her strength. I am Vivian's granddaughter, and I have her determination. I am Christy's daughter, and I have her compassion. I am Leah, and I have my voice and a story to tell, unquotes. Uh, so powerful, and it gets you. It gets us right into the ideas of like the bear legends. One of the early chapters is, is called Real Live Indians. Yes. I wonder about the 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 situation where you had the girl who basically called you out and said, you know, you're not native or like natives, you know, this idea of natives not being only in the past and not being with us in 2023. Yeah. Um, there is a few instances of that. I know that the one that Real Live Indians opens on is from when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a, we were we were nine <laughs> and it was, yeah. a, you know, she was telling me that um, I was lying about being native and that um indians aren't real anymore and that was the first real instance of that for me mm-hmm. it, it happened plenty of times after as that essay stands to show yeah. um but it was a bizarre feeling you know and it was one of those like mm-hmm. i you don't know how to comprehend and especially as a child you don't really know how to deal with it mm-hmm. um i didn't probably deal with it the greatest as stated in the book i i definitely punched her in the face yeah. um, <laughs> but i didn't have the words you know i didn't have right. a way to like solve it diplomatically right <laughs> <laughs> you write about the huge numbers 90 95 percent of native americans you know killed off with disease with war all of those things i mean there's there's a lot of great scholarship and continues to be about all the reasons why just that you know i mean a genocide and I actually I skipped through something that's really important there, but the, the bear legends. I, you start off with the bear as like the first on the on the totem, on the totem pole. I wonder what it is about like you know the mother bear, which people are kind of used to, but it's used in different ways. I wonder why you decided to start off with your first, the first totem pole um, piece, first totem being the bear. I wanted to do. Um... You know, I wanted to, as far as like the structure of the book goes, I wanted to follow up um, the totem pole. And, you know, as I stated, as I state in my introduction, uh, the person on uh, the figure on the bottom of a totem pole is actually given the most reverence. They're the ones that Mm. hold everybody up and sort of start the story. Mm. Um, And so bear was the natural place to start at the bottom of the totem pole, because that is my great grandmother. And that is where um, this divergence, this this thinning of blood hap- started. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the last full-blooded tribal member in, right. in the family. Um, and so that, you know, that started off on this path, uh, this, you know, for lack of a better word, dilution, this thinning of blood. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was why that was the place where I started and choosing and using myth and, and retellings of myth as for each section was very important to me because uh, you know my family 
stories always get told as if they are myths, the same parts repeated, you know, the same beats hit every time. And I just, it felt very natural to me to include tribal lore and history alongside that and show in a, in a shaping of these like oral histories and these legends, uh, a slight retelling and a, a version of them shape these women and the stories around them to show how interconnected they are with their totem. Yes, obviously there's subjectivity in the book because it's your memoir, it's your personal story. But, you know, one of the things that makes the book so good is that there, you know, there there are mixed feelings. Nothing is, you know, 100% one way. Like you write about, I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but mixed feelings towards towards Lillian, towards great grandma, you completely understand why, you know, she searched for a sort of safety um, for her kids. You know, the idea, you know, at the time and in the continuing today is, you know, like the Carlisle school and Pratt who started, it was like, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. And you write about, you know, the forced um, adoptions and all these things where, you know, assimilation was, was almost impossible to avoid. But, and you write about things like, um, you know, how bears eat their young at times, which does maybe is not as bad as it sounds. And Lillian, and, you know, kind of, kind of the way that she abused her, her great, her grandchildren. Now, I think I'm maybe mixing up a little bit, right? She was, she was the one who was not um, appreciative of her grandkids being that they were not full blooded. Am I right on that? Um, it was, it was Lillian's mother. Um, so it was, okay. yeah, Lillian never had a problem with her children being, you know, of of uh, different descent, but it was her mother. Yes. Who. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Um, who Nora Cook, who disowned mm-hmm. them, um, or not disowned, but had a lot of problems with them and treated them very poorly because, um, because they were not fully native. Yeah, and again, straight from the book, it's um, you know, a questioning of these of these women from a few generations back. Quote: How can you not see that they are still part of you, still strong? How could you give up on them? Don't you know your actions and your line? If you destroy them, what will be left of you? I, this is you, Leah, I can guess at the answers. Love is less important than preservation. I did guide them the best I could for as long as I could. They weren't strong enough to weather what was coming. I only gave up on part of them. My line in the future is less important than the world before me now. You know, I mean, I I think, I feel like so many cultures could relate to this, this idea of um, a safety, uh, a fitting in, a preservation but it doesn't mean that, you know, that you don't have mixed feelings. So, so I wonder about, yeah. about writing about mixed feelings, especially when it's a, a family member. Oh yeah. I think that that was something that I, I knew was going to have to happen because there is this sort of like the mourning of a culture I didn't get to grow up in, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was because of, you know, Lillian's actions and her decisions, which I do understand, you know, again, I, I write about that. I do know why they were made, mm-hmm. but because of those, I grew up without without any knowledge of anything. I had to I had to go and piece it all back together on my own because nobody in the, you know in the two generations that before me that were alive knew anything. Like they didn't know the stories um, or or the songs or any of it, and so I had to go and find it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they you know those people learned as like as I was growing up, but. They didn't start, you know, I wasn't brought up with it. Yeah. And uh, 
So, you know, it is a sort of, it is a dual, per, a dual sense of like understanding the decision and still mourning the loss that it created anyway. The second, going up the totem pole, the second part is about the salmon. You present the myth and the sacrifice of the family for the greater community that the, the myth, like I said, of the salmon, this idea of maybe the one, maybe the family has to be sacrificed for the greater good, for the overall um, the idea of the traveling light for you, you know, um, your saga with one of the house in Port Angeles with moving around a bit, very much uh, similar to the salmon. And you, you reference like one of the ants talking about uh, white Indians and you, you, you reference a trip to the emergency room and just ideas maybe of imposter syndrome. I wonder about what some of those uh, scenarios with some of those interactions like in the emergency room when you felt like maybe you're kind of being stared at um, and just kind of like that, the imposter syndrome, I don't know if that's the, the right phrase to use. Yeah, no, it was, it's a, it's an interesting thing to feel like you're not who you know you are. That mm. is the thing, you know, as I've always known deep within my very soul <laughs> that I am native right. and it is a very important part of who I am for mm. me. And it was, you know, it's still interesting to be around people that, didn't believe that of me or mm. thought themselves more or whatever, you know, whatever it may yeah. have been, it, you know, it was interesting to be among somebody, the people that made me doubt that or mm. doubt that I was good enough to call myself native or native enough to call myself native. Mm. And so it was, uh, it was an interesting experience for sure to be, it was, it, I hated going to the doctor there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you, again, the ideas of the mixed feelings, you, you make it clear that you feel in your soul native, you know that you are, but you also make it clear why, I guess like a, you know, how the external, how the government's actions over the years, over the decades, over the centuries have made it kind of like, oh, there are people who can be, who are imposters or so-and-so is claiming to be Native American to get a scholarship. Yeah. And you talk about the government actions that in your particular group, the Jamestown, you know, the, of the government actions that declared them not a tribe, maybe in the 50s, right? That takes away hunting rights. You know, just this yeah. idea that like, it does matter to the government who's Native and therefore you could see how that external racism maybe becomes internalized. You're a part of this, you're not, that kind of thing. But I was wondering about how the greater greater actions like of the, the government work on a kind of a daily basis within tribes that, that you've seen. Absolutely. I think, you know, the biggest thing is, again, the blood quantum um, and how that's because that's become a line that people draw um, mm. and and decide enrollment on. Well, now um, any any resources that a tribe may have go that go to tribal citizens, that is, you know, that has become incentive kind of placed by the federal government to to keep tribal blood quantum laws in place mm. because the fewer citizens there are the greater the pool of resources is for everybody mm. um which is uh you know tricky for some for people that don't think you know that may not want to think about the future and like what okay but what comes after this generation is gone mm -hmm. you know this idea of longevity isn't isn't present when you're thinking about the things you may need now. Sure. Um, so that's one thing. Um, again, the uh, there's a lot of 
government influence in uh, what people are allowed um, and also how, like, even, you know, back to healthcare, um, IHS, uh, it's Indian Health Services, is run through the federal government. It's a, it's a federal-wide program. Um, but that, you know, in the 70s to 80s, they were performing um, unlawful hysterectomies on women um, and sterilizing Native women um, and, and were subsidized to do so mm. by the federal government. Um, that is, uh, I, I write about the research of that as well um, in the book. But, uh, you know, so there's been a lot of things that it's sort of this idea of giving something or, or be seeming to give something, mm. uh, but it's underhanded or or harmful in some way in return. Right. Um, and that, that happens a lot. That is just sort of the story of mm. uh, a lot of tribal and native relations with the federal government. Hmm. Well, you write about settling in like in uh, in in your your ancestral home, really, in Port Angeles and the Olympia P Peninsula, settling in, but not quite, you know, not going into the tribal events, the language classes. Um, sounds like that your husband at the time was, you know, real negative talk and that got to you. But you also talk about like the positive where like with your grandma Vivian kind of swimming up river with that with the whole salmon motif symbol and rediscovering roots. And then also for you moving to New Orleans is kind of a liminal space, but maybe more in a positive way and kind of getting your feet under you a little bit there. Um, I wonder about the idea of of Grandma Vivian as as the salmon and kind of swimming up river if we were using the uh, the metaphor. Yeah. Yes, that was. I think I would describe her whole life as swimming up river. Mm. Um, she was she was a fighter for sure. Um, mm. Everything she did was in defiance of the expectations set on her. Mm. She overcame quite a lot in her life and still struggled. I think with some. You know, I I don't. We never talked about it. It wasn't it wasn't something she wanted to talk about. Oh, and she had I you know these the struggle with identity issues not that we ever talked about it but it's clear from the the things that i've learned about her um and sort of and seeing how she changed and did not change throughout the years mm -hmm. um you know there's the sort of warming up to her culture and like being embracing that but still sort of shunning the the like more spiritual or like story driven parts of our culture which okay. is a big part of it but you know she would embrace the ceremony part of things you know the singing and drumming the community but sort of never really warmed up to this idea of story or myth hmm. and i do think you know so it was clear to see like there's a, a struggle with identity and, and finding her place in it when she had yeah. been taught to sort of like reject it for a long time sure. but she was uh but she she never she was never one to accept being told what her place was <laughs> ever. <laughs> so um, it was uh, every time I learned new stories about her from her or from her children, it was always a wonder to see. Hmm. Part three, the totem is the hummingbird, representative of beauty and joy. And you write about, you know, Pocahontas, which is the famous Disney movie, and just, you know, blatant 
I mean, stereotypes, but blatantly offensive stereotypes. Um, the idea of like both siding, you know, giving was it John Smith, you know, giving like the other side, the British, the the white, the man, the Europeans, and you know, songs. That, I think there are two songs I believe you write about that are in the movie that are called Savages. Savages Part One, Savages Part Two. Yep. Um, and this is straight from your book. Quote. Um, other derogatory demeaning words towards natives like dirty shrieking devils, for example, are used 24 times, 46 times, I think was savages. I cut off I my so. nose there. As a child, I took every one of those gut punches just to enjoy the only slice of representation I connected with in life or on screen. And I did so while singing along, unquote. Man, that last line. And I did so while singing along. I just wonder now how you look back at those times where there was representation of a strong female indigenous native American figure. We also write about how the, the history of it was, was badly mangled in the, in the movie, but just uh, almost bragging about wanting genocide and, and not almost they were and dirty shrieking devils and savages and all those words you use. I just wonder about looking back and having some sort of representation, but, but also it being that particular representation. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that I th- to me, it shows why representation is so important because it wasn't even really good representation. You know, it wasn't even, um, it was harmful and it wasn't Pocahontas's for all that, all that they tried is not the main character of that story. Mm. She does not have a character arc or growth. Um, that is all John Smith. And mm. so it might be called Pocahontas, but the the character arc is John Smith. Right. And uh, Pocahontas is fully realized she's perfect. And so it's this idea mm. of there's this lack of representation for, you know, see being able to see yourself in that, in that place. You know, it's like, that is the perfect unattainable. That is not somebody that has flaws or grows. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it, but it's also of course, harmful stereotypes and, um, and, and a really bad mangling of history that if, if that's the only thing that anybody knows is that movie, uh, they have a horrible understanding of the actual story. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, as, as, as a kid, I, I, you know, as I think it just shows how important it is that we have representation, that it was, that it was one of the movies I watched all of the time, mm. even though it was not, it hurt me to watch it mm. at times. Yeah. You know, I, I was never comfortable during the songs, um, during, you know, the Savages songs um, or really a lot of other places like little one off moments. Mm. Um, I talk about in the very beginning, there's a there's a scene that was burned into my mind that I, I knew was coming even before even in a rewatch years without watching it. Mm. It because John Smith decapitates a mop that's meant to be suggestive um, of a mm. of a native american and while singing about it like we're singing uh, about killing you know the line is i believe we'll mm. kill ourselves an engine or maybe two or three mm. um and i knew that was burned into my brain because it was such you know such a significant hatred sure it, by somebody that's supposed to be a hero yeah. you know by somebody that's not the bad guy yeah and so it's yeah i uh i struggle a lot with that having been the only representation that was really available to me at that time thank you for that the, there's a parallel arc in the hummingbird part with hazel samson she was the last native speaker 
of the Kualum language. She died in 2014, 103. You can imagine the things she saw in her life. Um, you write about the certain key words that you you spell out in the Kualum language and, you know, an inability to pronounce them. It's a, it's a tough language. You it brought me back to my college linguistics classes, with, you know, glottal stops and all those things. Yeah. Um, but I wonder about these, this idea of, I mean, of, of a language literally, you know, not having native speakers, I think is the term you used. Correct me on the terminology. I'm, you know, there's there's a very particular term for, it could be like, I could pick up the language, which I'm not, I can't, it sounds like, but I could hypothetically pick up the language, but it wouldn't be as a native speaker. I, I guess about the importance of Hazel Sampson and the, the fact that the language is dying or dead. Yes, I believe it is... Um... Because there's a difference between a dead language and then, I forget the other term. So one is that if nobody speaks it mm -hmm. uh, regularly, and the other is is what Klalem is, which is um, that there are no people that were taught to speak it as a child. Mm -hmm. You know, there is nobody, there's no native speakers left. It's all people learning in classes. Right. Um, and so it's, you know, it is one of those struggles of losing this, losing a big part, you know, like there's, because now it is all academic study, mm -hmm. you know, it might be, we can, they can learn, people can learn conversational language parts of it, or mm -hmm. try to learn, you know, become as fluent as possible. But ultimately, it's not people growing up with this language and learning it from a young age, it is learning it academically, which mm -hmm. is inherently different. It is, right. it means it's no longer a living language. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the term. Yeah. Thank you. You've you finished the hummingbird part with the with your mom as the hummingbird. She's you know flitting around like the hummingbirds do. She's not able to to walk and and well well she excuse me the hummingbird's not able to walk literally right they you know yes. this idea of stopping to rest and your mom is a doer and a giver and so compassionate as you write about you know just a really cool connection with with your mom the generation before you as the hummingbird which you know, so many of us see as beautiful and as you write about joyful and beautiful. The Raven is the end of the totem, the top. And so part four really is about like the ending of the culture. And I hope, it, you know, hope it's not the end, but it's an ending or right. An yeah. endangering, right. You talk about how the Raven myth has a different, you know, like so many myths has so many different versions, but the Raven is a woman in your particular version. I wonder about the, the Raven and the myth in the way that you see it? Um, I think, you know, as I talked about before, the myths are all um, slightly restructured. They are repurposed um, in a way that is still, still, I believe true to the, mm -hmm. to the heart of it, to the, to the soul of what the story is. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, sort of crafted around. It's why I did not call them the legends so. of these, these totems. It is a legend. It is one mm -hmm. version. Mm -hmm. Um and the, these are my versions. And so with Raven, Raven is my totem. And I, you know, I do make it clear that this idea of, to me, the, the legend of the myth is this idea of spreading knowledge or understanding mm -hmm. um, and, and preserving something through sharing it. Uh, mm -hmm. The light if for, is, is my tribal history, is my family, is, is the, all the things that the book is sharing and mm -hmm. all the things I hope to continue to talk about and share and bring to light for people outside of my culture. Mm -hmm. um, because the more people that know about it and witness it, the longer it stays. Yeah. Um, and so that, that has always been sort of a connection to me is this, and it's 
you know, it's not done. I'm glad that it has the ability to, to serve purpose for others and to help other people and to be a light for others. Mm. I did it because for me, I did it because I didn't want my culture to go away. Sure. Um, I wanted to have that memory uh, in a physical form so yeah. that people, it would be harder for people to forget. Talked about earlier, you, you cite the stats like in the 1960s about the study said that about 25 to 35% of native American children were given up for adoption. You talk about blood quantum that was, you know, involved too, where the, the more than more native American blood, the more often given up um, of those 25 to 35%, about 90% of the adoptive parents were non-native. Obviously there's so much culture, so many centuries, years of, of, of myth and story and history lost um, you write about the stats for Native women as as victims of abuse, highly overrepresentative in the stat, overrepresented in the stats, and like you you mentioned multiple times, you know how, who knows because of like a a justified distrust of law enforcement and you know the government about being underreported. I know that abuse is always underreported anyway, right? Exactly. Domestic violence and stuff. And I I appreciate you really sharing in the book your own um, individual story with um with jonathan i i guess a boyfriend and he was unrepentant he was um he was he was violent first with his words and then clearly with his with his actions and you write about um a really 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 scary situation in which he he went very very far i just wonder you know, again thank you for sharing that and you can say as much or as little as you want but i just wonder about how about the the process or how difficult or how much you wanted to make sure to include your own personal story as painful as it was. Um, yeah, I don't think I'll talk too much about that. Um, but I will say just, I knew as hard as it was to share and as hard as it was to write about, mm -hmm. I knew that having a, a real story mm -hmm. and having that would be important for people to understand that it's not just statistics. Sure. You know, I think that hearing the human side of things and what actually happens makes things more real for people. Even people that mean well don't always fully understand until they see it right. in a personal interaction. Right. And so it was a it was a debate on whether or not I was going to include it. Mm -hmm. um, but I I wanted to do the most good, and so I knew that as hard as it was to share, it was important too. Well, thank you so much again for, for sharing. I mean, I'm a very selfless act that I'm sure so many people will get, will see themselves in that, which is unfortunate, but, but also hopefully a source of strength. You write about, you know, you, like you said, you want to make sure like, Hey, this is not just something in the past forced sterilization, for example, in the 1970s. And you wrote about your own doctor's appointment with the doctor who was seemingly pretty flippant about like, yeah, we could, you know, we could sterilize as well. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, um, there's a letter to the seventh generation granddaughter, which was one of the standouts of the book, highlights of the book. What's uh, kind of the history of the seventh generation and looking that far ahead? Uh, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of tribes that have always, that have done that um, for, for many, many generations. Um, it's the idea of making sure that the, the actions we take today um, and the actions that we, you know, the things that we focus on and work toward mm. are bettering not just our lives, but our lives for the next seven generations, you know, mm. our, our great, 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 great grandchildren, you know, that's, those are the people 
that we have to think about. And that's, that's how a lot of um, many tribes make decisions and, and make and choose where to focus or, or how to structure things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, you know, you write about very, very bluntly, very honestly, that you're not sure about, you know, wanting to have kids. And so there's, there's something there about, um, you know, about you being one eighth, And one sixteenth would would be the product if there were if there were to be a kid, but also would have to you know unless there were, but there are only five hundred forty two tribal members left, right? So the idea of two mates with skull and blood is pretty low. You write about there are two hundred ninety seven of the members with one eighth, so really um, you know dwindling unfortunately. What if what if your um, eighth, what if eight or nine generations down the line they read this book and they say, come on, how can we not think of me? Seven is that symbolic <laughs> number, huh? Yeah, I think that's the thing is that like this, you know, the seven generations is the, you know, is always is like what we're taught to think of, but uh -huh. it really does just sort of project you to the future because seven generations is already so, you know, little time, but also so much time when oh, you yeah. think of how quick things go. And so, um, you know, so eight or nine, it's, you know, it's even seven was hard to really think about. And mm. so thinking even just another 25 or 50 years beyond that. Yeah. is is yeah it's like i don't even i'm not even sure what the world would look like once again you know how much does it change Seriously. in that time Seriously. yeah the second to last part of the book is uh was so oof pardon the pun was so moving <laughs> had to do, had to do with infrasound which was so interesting I, i'd love for you to talk a little about it's the definition of infrasound and kind of its effects it it wasn't exactly like, i don't think what you're writing about but it made me think of like i mean obviously this would be true for native for many native americans about the idea of like trauma in the bloodline, you, you know, you talk about like Holocaust survivors and their, their kids, their grandkids who didn't necessarily, who didn't experience it, but almost like there's a, like a literal trauma that is passed down in the genes. But I just wonder about like infrasound again, what it, how you would define it and, and its use in your book. Yeah. Um, infrasound as a definition is um, I believe it's, I don't have the book in front of me, but I believe it's just below 20 Hertz. Um, okay. uh, so it's just outside the range of human hearing, mm -hmm. but it is still a sound that we can sense for lack of a better word. We feel right. it. Um, and it's usually associated with or found in uh, things that cause that would that would cause us to have a sort of like primal fear. So uh, tornadoes, earthquakes, tiger roars, tsunamis, all of those typically carry sort of this undercurrent of a very deep sound um, that we are inherently afraid of. Like mm -hmm. humans have, it is that sort of like stomach dropping dread uh, that it creates. Yeah. So interesting, this idea that, you know, whether I or we have ever literally felt that there, yeah, there's this idea that there's these vibrations that, that this, this idea, this difference between, or the, the connection between the physical and the mental and the emotional, right? The last part of the book is kind of you, you putting yourself in that, in that, in the Raven role or, or similar to it. And that the Raven is also known as like a trickster and adaptable and clever and, you know, in kind of in line with the way that you've, um, you know, moved around a bit, but really found your voice, really found your, Uh, family history, your lineage, so many interesting stories, and and gosh darn it, in the end, able to pass it on to the reader. I wonder about your your rationale in the last part, as 
kind of putting yourself in the Raven role, if I'm, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to, it's interesting because all of the other sections, I do the similar thing of, of facts about totem animals and comparing them with the women that they represent. And it's harder to do when it's yourself, you know, it's harder to say, like, here are the places in which I align. And so I think I just sort of spoke to the experience of connecting with my totem a little bit more and putting myself in that like space and also exploring the space between Raven in Western culture as an omen mm-hmm. and this sort of like not quite, but almost evil figure or sometimes straight up evil figure. Um, yeah. And in Western cultures, whereas in, you know, in native culture, in my native culture, at least in many others, it's, it's the idea of a trickster. And so it's not evil. It is maybe self-serving, um, you know, or it's, you know, kind of this idea of not, you know, altruistic, but not evil, still Mm. helping, you know, it's still, still a helpful entity. And so uh, sort of exploring the space between that, and where you know where do you fall um and and how do how does how are all these actions interpreted mm. um and also i think just sort of the idea of acceptance of self i think is very prevalent in that yeah. and you know it's like it doesn't matter what anyone else may see me as this is what i know i am mm. uh that that comes up i think a lot in that essay sort of the realization of of being native enough I appreciate that. I, I hesitated to even say the last part as if I'm, you know, giving away the ending, but, but I, I'm not. There's so much of the book that I can't adequately describe. It's such a, on a craft basis, like I talk about, it's so cool with the building of the totem and the symbols. There's so many interesting things about history, so many interesting things about the Pacific Northwest in particular, about the Sklalem in particular and their way of life and some of the other tribes in the Pacific Northwest and the way that there's, you know, have been self-sufficient uh, for so long. And obviously this idea that Native culture is, is still very much with us and alive. Um, so I just want to say congratulations on a, on a heck of a debut. You would be you would be more than justified to just be like, oh, I'm done. But I'm, sure, <laughs> I, but I'm sure you got some other work in you. I'd love to know what, uh, what you're working on in the future if you want to share. Yeah, I have, I don't have anything. Um, I have, I have stuff that I'm working on, nothing that's ready for uh, like sharing yet, but mm-hmm. I have um, a nonfiction, another nonfiction uh, book in the works, as well as further down the line, less developed as a, as a hopefully a fiction uh, novel as well. So okay. I'm very excited um, to be, to be writing again, be uh back in the creating phase instead of editing phases. It's always a fun place to be. Very cool. Very cool. Again, congratulations. It was awesome talking to you and I wish you great luck with your writing and everything in the future. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Been such a pleasure today to speak with Leah Myers. Continue good luck to her with her writing. So looking forward to continue to follow her career and her important work. I can never say that phrase. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will, Will, P-O-1, the number one. Leah, I'm so bad at asking. Please tell us about any uh, social media for yourself, any Twitter, Instagram. 
Yes, I have um, Twitter and Instagram. Both are um, at Native Wordsmith, so at N8V underscore Wordsmith um, on Twitter and Instagram. I also have a website where I link to any online publications that are available, as well as my social media and any books. Uh, that's Leah Myers, L-E-A-H-M-Y-E-R-S at uh, .com. Awesome. I'll definitely make those links in the episode notes. Any, you know, obviously we can buy your book anywhere, um, but I wonder if you have any particular bookstores or special places where we should go buy your book. Um, I am always a fan of shopping locally. Uh, any local bookstore, they should be able, if they don't have it, they should be able to order it. Mm -hmm. um, or for people that don't have a local bookstore nearby, bookshop.org, I believe mm -hmm. is .org, um, will uh, basically order through the nearest local bookstore or through a bookstore you'd like to support. Um, and they, they'll be able to order it as well. So I would always recommend that. Awesome. Remind us of the publisher. The publisher is W.W. Norton. Of course. Thank you for that. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes, including, I'm hoping, as we were talking about Tommy Orange, hopefully an upcoming episode about they're there. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills World podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 215 with Nick Fuller-Guggins. Nick is the author of the novel The Great Transition, and his short fiction and essays have appeared in the Parish Review, Men's Health, The Sun, The Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. He works as an elementary school teacher. And this episode will air on December 5th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Leah Myers, whose work, like thinning blood, gives you chills at will. Thank you.